who have your Bibles, we're going to be over in Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Or um, if you have the Version Bible app on your phone, you can follow along with us on there. Uh, you just open up the, the app, and on the bottom there should be a spot that says more. Click on that. Click on events. It should pop up right away, Cornerstone. If not, you can search Cornerstone Community Church in Owada, and it should pop up then. But while you're getting there to Luke chapter 2, uh, you have probably heard this before, um, or a variation of this phrase. Uh, man, that kid was just born with a gift. Right, like that kid was just born special, and we have a word that we use for these kids, and they're called prodigies. They're a prodigy. There's just something about them. They're super smart and super talented, and you know you can recognize a prodigy when you see one. Uh, for example, usually there's a bumper sticker on the car that they sit in. <laughs> I, I just kid. I kid. If you have a bumper sticker, that's that's fine. But somehow, some way, you hear about these prodigies. And I was curious as I was thinking about this and these kids that are just gifted and these people who grow to be so gifted. And they practice and they practice and they practice, but they're also, it just seems there's this innate gift. And so I was thinking about what are some of these famous prodigies throughout history? And luckily, History Channel's website just happened to have eight prodigies and some information about them. And so I was going to take a little bit of time to share some of the ones that you have probably heard about. Uh, for example, Mozart was a prodigy. He composed his first piece of published music at age five. And by the time he was a teenager, had written operas and symphonies. That's pretty good. I've never written even one piece of music. Um, he would eventually grow into one of Europe's most celebrated and prolific composers. Before his untimely death at age 35, he wrote more than 600 pieces of music. Then there was Picasso. Picasso made his first oil painting when he was nine years old. His skills soon surpassed those of his father, and at age 14, he was admitted to a prestigious Barcelona art school. Just a year later, he completed First Communion, an astonishingly mature work that was displayed in a public exhibition. The painting was among the first of the more than 22,000 artworks that Picasso would produce in his eight-decade career. When I was a child, my mother said to me, if you become a soldier, you'll be a general. If you become a monk, you'll end up as the pope. He later said, instead, I have become a painter and wound up as Picasso. And then there is Pascal. Born in 1623 in France, Blasé Pascal spent his youth being privately tutored at home by his father. The elder Pascal banished mathematic text from the house to ensure the boy first focus on languages, but at age 12, young Blasé had secretly invented his own terminology and independently discovered nearly all the geometric proofs of Euclid. His mathematical genius only grew from there, at 16, he produced an essay on conic sections so advanced that the famous philosopher René Descartes was convinced his father must have ghostwritten it. By 19, he had designed and built a mechanical calculator known as the Pascaline. 
Pascal went on to publish papers and conduct experiments on everything from fluid mechanics and perpetual motion to atmospheric pressure and the philosophy of religion. Before his death at the age of 39, he developed his, or he developed his famous Pascal's Wager, which uses probability theory to argue for belief in God. And you know, you could probably go online and search for prodigies and probably find tons and tons and tons of different names. But here's the thing. None of these prodigies can hold a candle to the greatest prodigy that ever lived. That is Jesus Christ. There's nobody else like Jesus. When you read through the scriptures, we see, and as we've been going through Luke over the last several weeks, we've seen that this kid was going to be special. There was something special about him from Gabriel appearing and, and telling, you know, Mary, you know, telling Zechariah about his son, all these things saying that there would come a Messiah and this Messiah, this kid was going to be important. And there's all these signs and all these things that were said that point to how special, how important this child would be. And last week, Cody took us through the beginning or part of John chapter two, Luke chapter two, man, I'm tongue tied and all sorts. Um, Anyway, Luke chapter two, there we go. Uh, And he talked about Simeon, Jesus being presented in the temple. We see Simeon come up and he speaks these prophetic words to Mary and Joseph about just how important this child was going to be. He was going to, you know, be the rise and fall of many in Jerusalem. And, you know, the Jews were expecting a Messiah, and yet this is not what they were expecting. He was not the Messiah that they were expecting. They were expecting militant Messiah, and yet this is not the Messiah that we would get. And he would share these prophetic words, and we saw everything that took place in that meeting with Simeon and Anna at the temple. But as we continue in our text this morning, we get another sign of who this child is and who he was and what his purpose would be. But also within this, we see an example of his humanity. And so we're going to start in verse 41 and look at the first two verses here. It says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And this here begins the only narrative we have in the Gospels of Jesus as a child. We don't see any other narratives where Jesus interacts as a child. And we see that at this time, he is 12 years of age. This was a special time, this year 12, because this would be seen as a time when a boy would be coming into adulthood and becoming a man. At this age, a boy would be expected to follow the law. He would be expected to start learning a trade, and he would take part in the great Jewish feast. And we see here that they're going to one of these feasts. They're going to Jerusalem for the uh, festival of the Passover. And there were three feasts that would take place every year that every Jew was expected to celebrate. There was the Passover, there was Pentecost, and there was the Feast of Tabernacles. And three times a year, men would be required to go to Jerusalem to worship. We see this in Exodus 34, 22 through 23. You shall observe the Feast of Weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the Feast of Ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. 
In Deuteronomy 16, 16, it says, Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. And here's the thing. It wasn't likely that people would be able to afford to go to all three, and so they would make an effort to pick one that they would try to go to, and most tried to make it to the Feast of the Passover. And we know the Feast of the Passover is the celebration of the Passover in Egypt, the passing over the houses with the blood on the doorpost, the plague of the firstborn. And the feast is described in detail in Exodus chapter 12. Then this one-day Passover would be followed by what was known as the seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread. We see this in Exodus 23, 15. You shall keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. Leviticus 23, 4 through 8. There are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord. And seven days, on the seventh day is the holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. And so this is why they are going over to Jerusalem. And then we pick up in verse 43. It says, And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And so we see when the feast had ended... It's not uncommon in the New Testament to see the entire week called the Passover festival. Also, people were not required to stay for the whole events, but they had to be there for at least the first three days. On those first three days, it's when they would eat the Paschal Supper, which was unleavened bread with herbs, a festive offering, and the Paschal Lamb. Then they would bring their offerings, and they would take part in the major parts of the ceremony. And so they leave. But then we see they're returning. Jesus stays behind in Jerusalem. And Mary and Joseph did not know this was the case. And so they start searching among the group of relatives and acquaintances, thinking that he would be there. You see, at this time, it was common for people to travel together. Women and children would be up at the front to set the pace. Men would be, men and, uh, yeah, all the men would be at the back uh, following behind. They would travel as relatives in villages, which would allow for people to keep an eye on other people's children. We know that Jesus is 12. He's coming into the age of adulthood in the eyes of the Jews. They probably trusted that he was following, probably moving from group to group within this group of people. But he is not. And they're searching for him, and they are searching for him frantically. And this word here for searching, they start searching for him. This is not a light word. It indicates that they are looking intensely. They are looking all around. If you were at a store or something and you notice that your kid is not with you, what do you do? You start looking all around intensely trying to find them. That's what's happening here. They are looking all over trying to find what has happened to our child. 
Well, then we go into verse 46. It says, After three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So after three days of searching, they find him. You might be thinking, man, three days. It takes them three days to find this kid. Well, three days here is not how we kind of read it. Three days here would refer to they're almost home, and that's a day's travel. And so they have to turn around and go back. So that's a day on their way home, day one, on their way back, day two, and on the third day when they're in Jerusalem, they find him in the temple. And that's where they find him. And what a fitting place to find him, as we'll see here in just a little bit. But he's sitting amongst the teachers, and he's listening and asking questions. And it says that everyone was amazed at his understanding and the questions he was asking. He's sitting there listening and picking up on everything that's being said, and he's asking questions, and people are amazed. Now, we don't know if Jesus was in the temple the whole time or not. Did he just stay in the temple from the time his parents left until they found him? It doesn't tell us. It's likely that he would. It would have been safer there than maybe out on the streets of Jerusalem. Um, Also, you know, his father would be watching out for him. Um, But this idea of listening and asking questions, this was something that was a very normal form of education for the Jewish people. Question and answers, it was common. R.C. Sprouls points out that after the feast, it was the custom for the theologians of Israel to remain there for a few days to have what they called theological disputations in which they would share the latest ideas and insights into theology. The students of the rabbis would sit at their feet for their learning process was very similar to that of Socrates and Plato at the academy. It was through questions and answers. The students would ask the rabbi questions, and at times, as a teaching technique, the rabbi would return questions to the students. And he, this is what's taken place, and they're just amazed at his insight, at his knowledge, at his, the questions he's asking, at how he's listening to this. And I think this is important when you look at the bookend to our text this morning in verse 40 of chapter 2. And it says, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Jesus was growing stronger physically. He was maturing. He was growing stronger physically, but he was also growing in wisdom and knowledge and in the favor and the grace of God. And we see that the people are sitting there and they're amazed. And I thought it was really interesting. I was reading through this text this week, and Mark Moore, a former professor of mine, made some interesting connections here that I had never really thought about. He makes the comment that at this time, Annas was the high priest. If you don't know, Annas, several years later, will be one of the men who will try Jesus. And he says, we can't help but wonder if he took part in this educational encounter with Christ. In addition, there was a man named Hillel. And Hillel was uh, born in 112 B.C. According to tradition, he lived 120 years There's a good chance that this event took place in AD 8, and there's a remote possibility that this Jewish scholar would have been in the audience. If he wasn't in the audience, it's almost certain that his grandson, you've probably heard this name before, Gamaliel would have been there. And if you don't know who Gamaliel was, he was one of the greatest Jewish scholars of that time, and he was the Jewish scholar who Paul learned under. And so it's possible that later 
Paul's teacher would be somebody at this time who was in the temple at this time when Jesus was speaking and asking questions and listening at the age of 12. But it just goes to how amazed the people were. The word for amazed is a word that literally means struck out of their senses. They were struck. They were awestruck. This, this person, this depth of knowledge, this insight he had just struck them. But then we go into verse 48. And it says, And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Mary and Joseph, they finally find their son, and they're amazed at what's going on. They're amazed at this interaction. But then we see Mary respond exactly the way you would probably expect Mary to react. She's been greatly distressed. She's been looking for her kid. Imagine, again, if you have lost your kid, what is the reaction that you're going to have? You're going to be distressed trying to find your child. This word distressed, it's one that means extreme anxiety, sorrow, or pain. And she's been searching, and they've been looking so intently, trying to find their son. It's interesting, this word distressed, it's actually the same word that Paul will use in Romans 9-2, uh, describing his concern for a lost Israel. You know, I worked at Walmart for a lot of years a lot of years, and you might think the most tense time that you can ever experience working at Walmart is Black Friday. Or if not Black Friday, any type of sales event. Maybe you work in retail or you've worked in retail and you know sales are difficult and they're hard and it's stressful. Inventory is also a stressful time in retail. But those weren't the most stressful times working at Walmart. No, the, the most stressful, tense times that any associate would have working at Walmart would when you would hear the phrase, Code Adam, come over the intercom. And maybe you've heard of a Code Adam, maybe you haven't. A Code Adam is what they call over the intercom whenever a child has gone missing. When a child has wandered away from their parents or they just can't find them, they'll they'll call out a code atom over the intercom. And what this means is as soon as they call that out, all associates are supposed to stop whatever it is they're doing. Middle, doesn't matter, they just stop what they're doing and they start looking all over the store for this kid. And they'll go to the back room and they'll start looking for the kids, start seeing if they maybe wandered into an area that was off limits for them. And we're just supposed to search for the child until we would find them, and then we would take them up to the service desk, and they would be reunited with their parents. And there were a few times that I got to see after a kid was found them being reunited with their parent, and that event would go exactly kind of how you think it would go. First, there would be relief, and there would be comfort knowing that they found their child, but then it would quickly turn to this kind of gentle rebuke. Don't ever do that again. Don't ever walk away from me. Don't ever, you make sure you stay by me anywhere I go in the store. You are to be right there with me the entire time. And there's relief and there's rebuke from those parents. And I imagine that's what Mary must have been feeling like here, just the relief, just the, the weight off of her knowing that she has found 
her child. And, you know, maybe there's a little extra pressure here, you know, son of God missing. But either way, she finds him. But then Jesus responds here with such a powerful response that is of such great and extreme importance. He replies, why are you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? Didn't you know I would be with my people? I would be with my people in my father's home, in my father's house. Some translations they use as the phrase about my father's business or in the things of my father. But either way, this shows us that there was an awareness from Jesus about his divine nature. He is linked to the father. And you know what? When he comes back onto the scene 18 years later after this event, he'll talk about that connection. Luke 10, 22, all things have been handed over to me by my father. And no one knows who the son is except the father or who the father is except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. And the gospel writers all come back to this. It's foundational. Jesus was and is the son of God. That can't be disputed. There is no ifs, ands, or buts. That is who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. And here's the thing. Even the demons know this fact. Matthew eight twenty nine. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us from before time? Luke four forty one. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And we know that it is because of this truth and this claim that he makes that the Jews would have him executed. But you see, we cannot take this lightly. We cannot take this lightly what this means, that he is the Son of God. I love how John MacArthur talks about this verse. He says, this is the Son of God. If you understand that, then you understand the gospel story. It unfolds from that great truth. And when someone does not acknowledge that this is God, the eternal God, the Son, who is the eternal Son, who came into the world to receive all that God had prepared for him, to obey willingly all God's will, to accomplish redemption and enthronement forever and ever, this is that Son. If you understand that, then you understand the Christian gospel. If you don't believe that, no matter what you believe, you can't be saved. There is not salvation in any other name than the name of Jesus, which embodies all that he is. And so to believe in Jesus, you have to believe in everything that he says he is, and that is he is the Son of God. You cannot say that Jesus is anything less than the Son of God and believe in him. You cannot say that Jesus was a good guy. You cannot just say that Jesus was a teacher. You can't say that Jesus was just somebody with some sound advice. You can't say that he was just a good person and not agree that he is the Son of God. And that's said by many. I, I don't have to agree that he's the Son of God to just think that he was a good teacher. No. He is the Son of God. And if you don't believe that he is the Son of God, then you can't believe all these other things about him. Because as C.S. Lewis puts it, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's what people say. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. You must make your choice. 
Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something else. You can, or you can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He is the Son of God. And we can say that we believe all these other things, but I refuse to believe that he is the Son of God. He didn't leave that open for us. He is the Son of God. If you do not believe that, then there's an issue. But here's the thing. If we do believe that, if we believe in everything he says, that everything he says is about himself is true, that he is the Son of God, the incarnate Son of God, then we know that if we believe in him and believe everything about him in him is eternal life. John 6.40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. And that word will there is important, and we'll talk about that. But then there's a word here that Jesus uses. Didn't you know I must be in my Father's home, in my Father's house? Must. The word must, it's, it's, it's interesting. Because must is a word that seems actually really common for Jesus. It seems very common for him to use. As a matter of fact, in Luke 4.43, he says, But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. I must. In Luke 9.22, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. In John 3.14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. You notice the connection? Each of these must relate to something very important, doing the will of the Father. Each of these must relate to doing the will of God, doing what God has asked the Son to do. All of these must are in relation to this is what God has sent me for. I must do these things. I must teach and preach about the kingdom. I must be... I must suffer. I must sacrifice. I must be that atoning sacrifice. This is exactly what Christ would do when he started his ministry, doing the will of the Father. John six thirty eight. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He would come, he would teach, he would preach about the kingdom, he would give his life on the cross, his blood would be shed, all in accordance with doing the will of the Father. And we see here Mary and Joseph, they don't understand this. They don't understand what this meant. I think this really ties back to what Cody talked about last week. You know, Simeon telling him a sword will pierce your soul. Of course, I believe part of this is watching her son die. But I think also that these moments of misunderstanding, these moments where Jesus points out the, you know, my real family are the ones who hear the word and do it, these moments where they don't fully understand, these moments where Jesus says something that cuts at them, I think that's what this is referring to. And we know that Mary and Joseph wouldn't fully understand everything that Jesus say would say or do. But throughout the life of Christ, I think Mary would start to understand it a little more and more. And then we go into verse 51. It says, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. 
and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So up to this point, we've really kind of seen a glimpse of his divinity, right? We've seen this glimpse of, didn't you know I would be about my father's business or in my father's house? Whatever translation you use, maybe it says one of those two things. We see a little bit of his divinity, but now Luke kind of shows us Jesus' humanity. He shows us a little bit of his humanity. He was submissive. He was submissive to his parents. He went back with them, and he was submissive to them. And think about this. Jesus, the Son of God, perfect, without sin, without blemish, and a sign of humility, submits to imperfect parents. He listens. He understands the importance of authority and submissiveness. And so I would say to kids, teens, all all of us in general, um, when your parents say, you need to listen to me, um, this is our example of this right here. Matter of fact, Colossians 3.20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So when you say, I don't have to do that, this is our example right here. But this is important because it speaks to his character. It speaks to the character of Jesus, and it shows that Jesus understood authority. And he would tell his disciples this later. You have to understand and respect authority. Matthew 23, 2 through 3, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. We'll come back to that end part here in a moment. But this is important because it tells us that while we are not to live like the world, we are still to listen to those who have been placed in authority because they have been placed there by God. Scripture tells us this. Romans 13, 1 through 2, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. In Hebrews thirteen seventeen, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give to a, who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You see, we are told to follow the authority to respect the authority, to listen to the authority that has been placed over us. That means spiritually, the leaders in the church, that means the authorities that have been placed among us outside of the church. We have laws and regulations for a reason. If I speed, I deserve a ticket. Those are the uh, the rules, the laws, the regulations. They are there for a reason, and I am to respect and listen to those But then you may ask the question, well, wait a minute. What if the world tells us that we we have to do this, we have to act immoral, or we have to believe in things that are immoral or things that are not of Scripture? Then what are we to do? If they're asking me to do something that I don't want to do or I don't agree with them or maybe it's just simply I don't like them, I don't like this side of the aisle, I don't like this side of the aisle, I really don't want to listen to them. We get it confused. But what if they're asking us to do something immoral? Well, we are to be holy. We're to be holy. Scripture tells us that. We're to be holy in all the things that we do. 
if our leaders are telling us to not worship God, if our leaders are asking us to act in immoral ways, if our leaders are act, asking us to do something that is contrary to Scripture, then we have the obligation to do what is said in Acts. We must obey God rather than men. That's why Jesus' words in Matthew 23 is important. Do not do, as, or do, not do their works. They preach, but they do not practice. That's the difference. If they are telling us to do something immoral, if they are not living it out and are expecting us to do it, we have an obligation to be holy. But we also have to remember we have an, we have an obligation to listen to those who have been placed in authority. And this is hard for us. This is hard for us. We let views and opinions get in the way of doing what Scripture tells us to do. We are to listen to and respect the authority that God has placed in those positions up until that authority asks us to be immoral, asks us to be unholy, asks us to do anything that is contrary to the word of God. Then we have an obligation to remember we have to be holy and follow the words of God. And Jesus sets this example. He sets this example in how he is submissive to his parents, does what they ask him to do, listens to them. He shows his willingness to submit to authority. And we read next that Mary treasured up these things in her heart. She was perceptive. She was full of faith and continued to think about and reflect on all these things that she was hearing and seeing one sign after another. And then our text, it, it ends with a, kind of a bookend. You know, last week, the end of the text that we were in read that, and their child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon them. And then at the end of this one, and in Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus continues to grow. And the word here, it's a, for this phrase, it's a word that literally means cut one's way forward. They continue to move forward, continuing to grow, increasing mentally, physically, spiritually. Jesus continues to grow. He continues to be in the word, and he continues to be in communication with God the Father and continues to learn through the Holy Spirit, and he continues to grow in favor with God and with man. It's interesting. We see this phrase throughout Scripture. We see it with Samuel in 1 Samuel 2.26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. We see it with John in Luke 1, 80, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Even though he was the son of God, he still had to learn and grow and seek out the Father. I think there's an important message there for us. We never, if the Son of God had to continue to learn and grow and understand, what should that tell us? What should we be doing? Continuing to learn and study and grow and be in communication with the Father and seeking out the Father. It's not a, okay, I become a believer, I'm good now. No, each and every day we should be learning and growing and studying the Word, trying to commune with God more and more each and every day. This is what the Son of God did. He learned, he grew, continued to learn and grow. And here's the thing. Chronology-wise, this is the last account we get of Jesus as a youth until he shows up and begins his ministry 18 years later. And look back to what Simeon said last week. 
For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Everything we've been going through in Luke up to this point revolves around Luke telling us who this child was, who he was going to be, why he was so important. Everything's been leading us, telling us who he is going to be. And then next week when we come back to Luke and we start to uh, move out of this period, Jesus as a child, we start to move to that. We see this is that last last thing that everything's been leading us here. What has it been leading us to? This reminder that he is the son of God, the Messiah, a light to the Jews and the Gentiles alike. He came to do the will of the Father, and part of that was his sacrifice, his body that was broken, his blood that was shed for us. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And as they do, listen to what it says in 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The Son of God came to do the Father's will. What was the Father's will? To preach and to teach about the kingdom, but also to be that sacrifice, that atoning sacrifice. And we talked about it, to to believe. You had to believe in everything that he said, everything that he did, everything about himself that he proclaimed. And he is the Son of God, and he is the atoning sacrifice, and we have to believe that. And maybe you haven't. Maybe you've, you're here this morning and you have not believed in the Son of God. Maybe you are here this morning and you have not put your faith in Him because you have so many questions. Maybe you have questions. Maybe you're struggling and, and trying to figure out who this man was. Maybe you're, you're reading the Word but you don't understand it. And maybe that's been the roadblock. And if that's the case, if you've never put your faith in him, if you've never followed him and you just have questions about who Jesus is and and what he did, and maybe you just need to talk about it. If that's the case this morning, you can come and talk with me. I'd love to talk with you about it. Or maybe you're here this morning and you just need prayer. Maybe you've not been leaning on him, trusting in him the way you should. He is the son of God and we should be taking all these things to him and yet we don't trust him or we don't lean on him the way we should. Maybe you just need to spend some time in prayer. We can pray with you. I'd love to pray with you. There's brothers and sisters around you who would love to pray. Man, this child was important. That's an understatement. He was the son of God sent here to do the will of the father. And part of that will was to go to the cross, bloodshed, die for us. But he didn't stay there. No, he rose three days later. He is alive today, and because of that, we can have redemption. We can have reconciliation with the Father. And if that is you this morning, if you are needing to talk about that, we're going to do this last song. We'd love to talk with you. Let's stand and let's sing.